So Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day day journey away. When they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. He said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. It became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us among among us during all that time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, until the day when he was taken us from, up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. They put forward two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles." Well, my wife and I have gone to Florida a number of times. When we go down to Florida, there's a little island down there that we like to go to called Sanibel Island. And it's a nice little island, um, but the thing is, when you go to the beaches on that island, they're very crowded, it's hard to find a parking spot, and it's very expensive. You have to pay like $5 an hour to park at, at these beaches. So what we've done a number of times when we've gone down there is we've rented bicycles. And then these bicycles you can take to some of the more remote beaches where there's no parking, uh, a little bit more quiet, and uh, you don't have to pay uh, for the parking. Uh, In addition, there's like this nature preserve, and you can take the bicycles through the nature preserves, and there's birds and stuff. So we've done that a number of times. So this last time we went down to Florida a few weeks ago, uh, Stephanie and I are having breakfast, and uh, I say to her, wouldn't it be cool to rent one of those like bicycle buggy type things? You can see what I'm talking about on the screen. They're the bicycles where they have, you can have two people and then you can put kids in the front. I said, wouldn't it be fun to ride something like that? So I looked it up on the website of the place where we were renting bikes and they had them, but they were very expensive. So I'm like, all right, we'll just rent regular bikes. And then we get there and it was about 11.30, and I said to the guy who was working there, so if we pay for a four-hour rate, I know you guys close at four, but if we pay a four-hour rate, can we just keep it for the rest of the day? And he's like, yeah, yeah, you can keep it. Just bring it back whenever you want before tomorrow morning. You can keep it. So I thought, okay, that's awesome. We can rent it, have it for the whole day. And I was ecstatic, thought we can go to all these beaches, do the nature preserve, we'll have a shelter over our heads so the sun doesn't beat down on us. So we start going, and it wasn't too long before I realized we had made a big mistake. 
Because these bicycle buggy type things are not like riding a bicycle. Not only is it a lot more, a lot heavier than a bicycle, but you have to ride in perfect sequence with your partner or else one person is doing all the work and the other person isn't doing anything. On top of it, it was over 90 degrees at this point. So we never made it to all the beaches that we wanted to make it to. We didn't make it to the nature preserve. And at 3.30, we showed back up at the bicycle place and we're like, here, just take it. And we're thinking to ourselves, so what were we doing? Like, why did we just do that? Like, the whole point of riding the bicycles was to get to these remote beaches to do the nature preserves. And here we are paddling twice as hard and going half as far and didn't make it to the beaches. Uh, last week we talked about the mission of God. We talked about how God, how God entrusts His people with a global mission. The goal that Jesus gives His disciples is clear that we're to be witnesses to His resurrection and to His power. But I think if we're not careful, we can start going in the wrong direction. If we're not careful, we can end up in a place that we never intended. We can be pedaling twice as hard, but going half as far. To illustrate what I'm talking about, consider the principles and precepts of a famous college or famous university that you may have heard of. The principles say this, Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the end of his, of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. Peter Greer and Chris Horse in their book, Mission Drift, say this, Founded in 1636, this university employed exclusively Christian professors, emphasized character formation in its students above all else, and placed a strong emphasis on equipping ministers to share the good news. Every diploma read Christo et Ecclesia around Veritas, meaning truth for Christ and the church. Now, what school do you think that is? A famous seminary, famous Bible school? Might surprise you to know that that was Harvard University. If you would go onto the campus of Harvard University today, you would probably have no idea that that was the foundation that it was built upon. It was built so that students would know Christ. Somehow they got off track, and I think if we're not careful, we can do the same thing. We can get off track and become a church that doesn't look like the church that God wants us to be. We can look a number of different ways. We can become like a cruise ship church. Cruise ship church, comfort is king. We can form committees and talk for hours and hours about having nicer, comfier seats. The focus in a cruise ship church is about just having a good time, having a social club. Anyone who comes in the church with, who, with real issues is just pushed to a side, pushed to the side. We can become a political church. In a political church, we look at the society and we think the problem is with the culture and our government. And so we look outside of ourselves and judge and condemn. We form boycotts and marches. And, and we, all we do is fight against our culture. We could become a social services church. We could open up a soup kitchen, raise money to fight poverty. All good things to do, by the way. We could become an education church. 
We could have six different Sunday school options. We could offer different classes from parenting to end times eschatology. We could sit around and debate when Jesus is going to come back and what the nature of his kingdom is going to look like. And debate all different issues of interpretation. Or we could decide to become a mission church. A church that's focused on God's mission. A church that is determined to be witnesses in our community and the areas around us. Witnesses to the power of Jesus' death and resurrection. If we're not careful, I think we can get one or two or three or four years down the road and look at our church and say, where did we go wrong? How did we get so far off base? But in this passage, I think it provides us with some helpful principles to help us stay on track, to help us keep on the the path of following after the heart of God. We see in this passage, Jesus has just descended into heaven. The disciples have gone back to Jerusalem and they go up to the upper room where they're staying and we're told that the disciples are there the brothers of Jesus, some women, probably some of the disciples' wives and some other women. And, we t- and they tell us in the text that they were, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. You could translate this as they were of one mind as they prayed. It speaks of an incredible unity of purpose. They have one single goal in mind. And when you think about any organization, whether it's a, a church or a company, a sports team, no matter what group it is, that is the most important thing, that there would be a unity of purpose. You know, I've been watching some of the NBA Finals. You know, and both the teams in the NBA Finals are really great teams. They really move the ball well, and they work together as a team. But you think about that, and you think, what if they all had different goals? What if one person wanted to be the MVP? And so he brought the ball up, and no matter how many guys were on him or how many people were open, he was determined he was going to shoot and make, make shots so he'd become the MVP. What if another person wanted to break the record for three-pointers in a game? And so every time they brought the ball up, he was standing outside the arc and just calling for the ball, say, pass it to me, pass it to me. What if one person was obsessed with dunking the ball? wanted to be on ESPN and the highlight reels. And each time his team was playing defense, he was at the half court waiting for a pass so he could have an open lane to go down and take a dunk. If that were the case, the inevitable result would be conflict because they're all doing different things. They all have different goals, and they all want the ball. But if they have one goal, if that goal is to win, there's a unity of purpose And when one person is open, they're going to get the ball because it doesn't matter who scores. It just matters that they score and they win the game. That's true for any organization. It's certainly true for the church. The church that's effective in carrying out God's mission is a church where all its members are united in purpose. A church where all its members are united in purpose. Not some of its members, not having different groups that are doing different things and have different ideas, but that all of the church's members are united around one purpose and one goal, and that's to make Jesus known in our city. And if that's our goal, if that's the bottom line, it's going to remove some of the conflict or potential conflict that could arise. 
Because when that's the criteria, the, the bottom line, it answers a lot of questions. I read a book a number of years ago when I was in seminary called Made to Stick. And in that book, they talked about Southwest Airlines, and they talked about how they're, they're a very successful company, and despite other companies being unsuccessful, uh, they've been profitable for uh, decades. And they talk about one of the reasons why that is the case, and that's because they have this bottom line core value, and that value is that they want to be the low-cost airline. And they take that core value and they kind of apply it to any possible decision that comes up. And so any decision that comes up, they ask themselves, is this going to help us become the low-cost airline? And then they make the decision based on that. For us as believers, we need to ask ourselves, is this going to lead people to Jesus? That's the bottom line, that nothing else matters. And so when we come to conflict, sometimes that clears up the air pretty quickly. You know, you hear the proverbial story about a church that split over the color of the carpet. You know, you think about that and you think, well, which color carpet would lead more people to Jesus? Probably you'd come up with the answer, it doesn't matter, and if that's the case, you just flip a coin, it doesn't matter. Jesus wants us to be unified. He wants us to have one goal and one mind in reaching people and being Jesus in our community. John chapter 17, Jesus prays that we'll be unified, that we'll be one as He is one. And that's His heart for us. So that's the first step we need to take as a church. We need to be united in purpose. But I don't think that's enough. It's a good first step, but it's not enough. Because if we're not careful, even our passion for good things can lead to conflict. Let me tell you what I mean. So imagine you have two people who love Jesus. They both have a passion to be witnesses for Jesus. One person wants to open up a soup kitchen. One person wants to start a youth ministry. Now there's only limited amount of funds available. You can't do both. Say you can't do both. Now those two potential goals could come into conflict. But there's something that helps us to kind of sort through those kind of potential conflicts of how we do ministry, and that thing is prayer. Not only do we need to be united in purpose, we need to be united in prayer. They were with one mind, united in purpose and united in prayer. church that's effective in mission is a church that's united in prayer. See, prayer helps us sort through conflict. As we pray, we come to God not just to pour out our requests. We do that. We you know, come to God and share our hearts with Him. But as we come to God, we also need to hear His heart. And so we come to Him in prayer and we say, God, I, I feel this calling to start this youth ministry. I feel this calling to start this ministry for the homeless. But I don't want to do what I want to do. I want to do what you want to do. What's your heart? Is this what you want me to do? And we ask God, God, check my motives. Do I want to do this so that people would notice me or I'd feel important about myself? Or do I really have a heart to do this because you've called me to do this? And so as we do that, God gives clarity to us and He gives confirmation or He shows us that that's not the way to go. One pastor put it this way. If the request is wrong, God says no. 
the timing is wrong, God says slow. If you are wrong, God says grow. If the request is right, the timing is right, and you are right, God says go. Prayer isn't about changing God. It's about changing us and helping us become aligned with what He wants. William McKinley uh, was allegedly a man of great prayer, and as he was dying in 1901 in Buffalo, uh, it was supposedly he was praying the Lord's Prayer as he was saying his last, last breaths. He grew up in a devout household. His mother was a strong believer, and she taught him to pray from an early age. But he really learned to pray when he became the President of the United States. And uh, one situation that was very difficult for him that he really wrestled with was what to do uh, with the Philippines after the Spanish-American War. Uh, one day, a group of church leaders came to the White House, and McKinley told them how he worked through and processed the decision. He said this, The truth is, I didn't want the Philippines. I did not know what to do. I sought counsel from all sides, Democrats as well as Republicans, but got little help. I walked the floor of the White House night after night until midnight. And I'm not ashamed to tell you, gentlemen, that I went down on my knees and prayed Almighty God for light and guidance more than one night. And one night late it came to me this way. He went on to talk about the strategy that developed in his mind, that the Philippines should be seriously helped, that by God's grace they should do the very best that they could for their fellow man for whom Christ died. McKinley added this, and then I went to bed and went to sleep and slept soundly. A church that's effective in carrying out God's mission, a church that's united in purpose and united in prayer. Prayer is the key for everything that we're going to do. J. Edwin Orr said this, History is silent about revivals that did not begin with prayer. Henry Blackaby said this, All revival begins and continues in the prayer meeting. Some have also called prayer the great fruit of revival. In times of revival, thousands may be found on their knees for hours, lifting up their hearts, heartfelt cries with thanksgiving to heaven. Prayer is absolutely essential. It's key to what we need to do as a church, to be united in purpose, united in prayer. But we see something else that happens. As the early church is united in purpose and they're united in prayer, we see that God raises up a leader to meet a need. We see in this passage that there's a problem. There's only 11 disciples. There needed to be 12. Most likely they wanted there to be 12 to correspond with the 12 tribes of Israel. And Peter rises up as a leader and he assures the people that, th that this did not take God by surprise. And then he walks the disciples through a process of choosing another disciple. And I believe a similar thing that happens in this passage happens often to the church. As we're united in purpose and we're united in prayer, God raises up leaders. He places needs on people's heart and he raises up leaders to meet those needs. Now you might say to yourself, that's not me. I'm not a leader. I don't like to stand in front of people. I never went to seminary or Bible school. But that's not what it means to be a leader. It's not about being in the limelight. It's not about having a place of prominence. 
Leadership is about boldly taking responsibility for what God calls you to do. It's about taking responsibility for what God calls you to do. See, there's a difference between a leader and a follower. And there's nothing wrong necessarily with being a follower. God doesn't necessarily call all of us to be official leaders. But a follower says this. A follower says, if you can make this happen, I'll help you. A leader says, we can make this happen together. See the difference there. The leader takes responsibility to make this happen. The leader trusts God to make it happen. Doesn't leave it to somebody else. He or she trusts God. A number of years ago, God laid it on the heart of a friend of mine to start a homeless ministry in Niagara Falls. Um, and his vision was to, was to start a homeless shelter that was centered around the gospel. There was one other homeless shelter that uh, was nominally Christian but didn't preach the gospel. And so he wanted one that was focused on leading people, not only meeting people's physical needs, but also leading them to Jesus. And so he spent a lot of time praying about it and, and working through what that would look like. And the truth is, to start something like that, it's, it's an incredible endeavor because you think about serving people meals and providing housing for people who really can't give you anything and doing that for an extended period of time, it, it costs an enormous amount to run something like that. So he, he kind of took steps forward in starting that ministry. And uh, after not too long, somebody donated this old rickety motorhome. Uh, terrible looking thing. At this point, I thought he was a little bit nuts. And what they would do is they would uh, load up people. Uh, I, would, I would go to them once in a while. And uh, they would just make soup and go down to the, some of the worst areas in Niagara Falls and just share the gospel with people. You know, sometimes this was in the cold, so they would, you know, if people wanted to talk, they'd say, you know, come on into the motorhome. And they'd just share Christ with people. And they continued being faithful and doing the things that God called them to do, but still with that vision to have a homeless shelter and to provide meals for the homeless. After being faithful to God and waiting on God in 2015, they acquired a property that was 60,000 square feet in the inner city of Niagara Falls for the price of $1. One year later, 2016, they received a $1.7 million grant to renovate that building. And now countless people are hearing the gospel and having their physical needs met because one person decided he was going to be a leader. Decided he was going to trust God to do something that even myself, I thought it was nuts. And by the way, he wasn't a pastor. He wasn't a ministry leader. He was just an ordinary person who trusted in God. He was a photographer. But God used him in a mighty way. I don't believe that everyone's called to be a leader, but I believe that as God's people pray, as God's people are unified, God raises up leaders to meet the needs in our community. Claude Alexander, bishop of the Park Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, said this about bold leadership. He said, There are questions that beg to be answered. There are dilemmas to be overcome. There are gaps to be filled. And the challenge is for you to fill them. This is the essence of the high call of spiritual leadership. There's a purpose for you being here. You're meant to answer something. 
solve something, provide something, lead something, discover something, compose something, write something, say something, translate something, interpret something, sing something, create something, teach something, preach something, bear something, overcome something. And in so doing, you improve the lives of others under the power of God for the glory of God. See, leadership is not just something for myself and Pastor Phil and Patrick. We need leaders in our community to meet needs. There's a community around us that's crying out for God. Crying out for something to satisfy the holes in their hearts. We need people to rise up say, I'll take responsibility for this or that. I don't know how it's going to come about. I don't know how I'm going to have the resources. I'm not sure how I'm going to get the people. But I'm going to say yes to God. church that's effective in carrying out God's mission is a church that's united in purpose, united in prayer. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love for us. We pray that as you prayed in John chapter 17, that we would be one as you are one. That we would have a unity of purpose, that we would all be focused together on the mission of leading people to your heart. Leading people to your love and your grace. Lord, I I pray that we would be people of prayer. That we come to you not just to pour out our requests, that we do that, but we also come to hear what you want for us, to hear your heart. Lord, we pray that as we do that, you would raise up leaders to meet needs in our community. People who boldly say yes to you, who take responsibility to do whatever it is you call them to do. We thank you for your love. We look forward to what you're going to do. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.